I want to encourage you all to grab your Bible and turn to John chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 17 through 37 today. If you don't have a Bible, well, that's okay. We have some in the back. And so you can get up, you can grab one in the back at the resource table. Uh, there's a big sign that says connect here. And right beside it, there are some ESV uh, Bibles. That's the translation that we usually preach from. And you can grab uh, one of those. You can keep that. It's our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of that. We don't put the text on the screen. We believe that uh, our, our mission as a church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We want you to be able to find this text in your Bible. We want you to be able to look there. We want you to be able to, to have this and, and know that this is God's word, not just something that we've thrown up, not my ideas, but this is his word that we are preaching uh, to you. So um, if you join me in John chapter 11, and I'm going to read verses 17 through 37, and then I'm going to pray, and then we will get into God's word this morning. John chapter 11, verse 17, would you hear the word of God? Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she arose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we give you praise and glory for who you are. 
We thank you so much that we have this opportunity to gather as your people and to hear from your word. And Father, I ask that you would still our hearts, that you would help us in this moment to hear what you would have for us, that you would meet each person where they are today. I pray, Father, that you would humble the sinner, that those that may have walked in here thinking that they need nothing from you would be humbled by their need of a Savior, that they would see Jesus clearly this morning, that you would draw them to yourself through your grace, through your mercy. I pray, Father, that you would encourage those that may have walked in discouraged, that you would help them, God, to see Christ clearly, to see that they have a helper in time of need. Father, I ask for illumination of this text, and so I simply ask what we know not, you would teach us, and what we are not, you would make us, and what we have not, you would give us by your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, we looked at the beginning of this remarkable story, the story of Jesus Christ raising Lazarus. And we learned that when Jesus heard that one of his friends, Lazarus, was sick and was near death, which he found out by way of messenger, but we know that he knew all things, when he hears this message, when he learns of this illness, he stops. He delays in going to his friend. And in this time of waiting, Lazarus dies. But according to the scripture, God planned to allow Lazarus to die in this way so that the glory of Christ would be shown as he raises Lazarus again. And those around that witness this are then helped in their belief. He says even, in fact, in verses 14 and 15, if you look above there, he says, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. He says, this is good for you. And as we looked at this last week, we were reminded that God works through undesirable situations, even death itself, for his glory and for our good. And often, God makes us sit in our undesirable situations, doesn't he? Sometimes he says you, you need to sit right there for a little while longer than especially we would like. But brothers and sisters, we have hope because our waiting is never in vain. We can be confident that God is at work in us as he sanctifies us, as he then produces uh, endurance in us, as he produces perseverance in us as we continue to run the race ahead. And today as we continue in this story we learn more about the main character of the story, the protagonist of this story himself, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the main character of all of Scripture. It's not us. We are not the ones that Scripture is written about. It is for the purpose of his glorification. And there are two characteristics of Christ that I want to highlight in this section. First, we will see the power of Christ. And second, we will see the compassion of Christ. We'll see the power 
and the compassion. If you look at verse 17 with me, we notice quickly that Jesus has now made his way to his friends. And upon his arrival, he learns that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. So he finds him. He sees, hears that Lazarus had already been in the tomb. Now, why do you think John puts this here? Well, plainly, it's to show that Lazarus is really dead. This isn't some hoax. Lazarus has died. This is clear. See, John's highlight of four days is significant for a few reasons. First, the saying that one had been in the grave for four days was equivalent to saying that bodily corruption had begun. See, Jews did not embalm. Uh, they would throw some spices on a dead body, and then they would wrap that body up, but they didn't believe in embalming. And the fourth day of death is when decomposition really takes form. The body starts to really do some weird, grisly stuff. I'll spare us the details, but let's just say it's, it's good to know that if you see a body that has been dead for four days, there's no questioning that that thing, that corpse, is dead. It's a dead body. If we look down further in verse 39... We, the resurrection is actually about to take place. We read that Jesus said, take away the stone. And then Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. So this emphasis of four days is significant. Uh, the King James puts it like this. Lord, by this time he stinketh. He's going to smell really bad. There's something that is dead that long will not have a pleasant smell. Second reason why this is a significant point to ponder is because according to rabbinical thought, the soul of a person upon death would kind of wander around the tomb for about three days. And they would wander there and then hoping to maybe make its way back to this body. But once this soul would see the, the, the changing of the corpse, they would then remove itself upon the fourth day. Uh, this is why many uh, people that were faced with death would then go to the tombs of their dead ones that first three days because they somehow felt that they would be closer to this person. The soul of the person is, was still there. So then, when the fourth day came, they knew, like, this is it. And so they would then leave the tomb, the grave, and they would say, I have great lament because this person is now past. They're, they're gone. There's no coming back here. It would be great mourning. It would be lament. They knew that death was then irreversible. Now, we know that that's not what happens to the soul upon this, when the body 
dies, when there's death on our souls. We know our, our souls do not hover around us trying to get back into our bodies. But, but this was a thought that was then. And so what Jesus does here is to ensure that the people there know Lazarus is dead. This is a point of no return. See, it was culturally significant. And it then brings greater illumination and illustration for what he's about to do. If you recall, this isn't the first time that Jesus has raised someone from the dead, is it? Uh, back in Luke chapter 7, uh, the widow's son is raised. Uh, this would be before this period. Luke records that. Uh, also, there's uh, another example of that in Luke 8 that would have happened before this, where Jairus' uh, daughter had been raised from the dead, but they were quicker. They weren't, in the, the time had not gone by like this situation with Lazarus. So this would eliminate any speculation that the one raised was not really dead. The point that Lazarus is dead, everybody knows it. There's no coming back. See, at this time, death was also a community affair. We kind of now, we, we invite some friends and just loved ones, but people would come from all over to console those that are mourning death. It wasn't a, I mean, they had to deal with the body themselves. They didn't call the coroner. They didn't call then uh, the, the greatest funeral home to come and take the body off and, and do things to the body to make it look pretty like it's about to go to a cocktail party. They would deal with this person, the person that had died. They had to then deal with it themselves, but then brought greater lament and mourning. Look at verse 18 with me. So we get then this kind of scene of time here, or geography, and it says Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So like I said, in this time, the comforting the bereaved was regarded as a communal responsibility. I mean, this family now has this group of people that have come to help them, that are surrounding them as they mourn. Uh, I mean, this would last for a week. And John gives us this uh, geographical situation here. It says that they came from about two miles off. So apparently this family lived a little bit outside the city. Now, two miles then was not like two miles to us. It was a longer journey. They would have to walk. They would have to ride a donkey or something. So the point here that we should see is that Lazarus's family, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, this family, these siblings that lived together were likely a prominent member of this society, to have people come from the capital city to then help them in their grieving was a big thing. And also, what we must see is that sovereign hand of God is at work here. And God is here gathering people that will witness this great 
miracle, as a sign of Jesus' authority over death. See, God is intentionally working out his plan of salvation here. He is doing what is needed to get Jesus to the cross at the exact time that he had ordained throughout all of history. None of this is accidental. Quick application here for us. God is sovereign over all details in all things. He is absolutely sovereign in everything we go through. Listen, brothers and sisters, there are no accidents with God. God is not surprised by anything. He is all sovereign, omniscient, omnipresent. He knows everything. He knows you better than you know yourself. He is Lord over all things, all persons, all places, at all times. The early 20th century theologian A.W. Pink is helpful here as I quote, Nothing in all the vast universe can come to pass otherwise than God has eternally purposed. It is not blind fate, unbridled evil, man or devil, but the Lord Almighty who is ruling the world, ruling it according to his own good pleasure and for his own eternal glory. Church, rest in that reality today. That everything that we go through in times of trouble, in times of need, God is still sovereign. He is still working. This is what we should do. We should run to the one who is sovereign. Amen? We should run to Christ. We should turn to the one that is in control, not to these minute things that are not in control. We see here in verse 20 that that's exactly what Martha does. Martha runs to Jesus for consolation. Look at verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now, brothers and sisters, look here, take note. She goes. She doesn't wait for Jesus to arrive here. She's not sitting back twiddling her thumbs. She she goes to Jesus. I mean, Martha's not simply satisfied with the, the, the consolation of her community. That's a good thing. We, we, we need community. We need the church. I mean, we need one another. But listen, one another's without Christ simply will not do. We need Jesus. We need Christian community. We, we need people to console us, but void of Christ, that consolation is empty. She knows Jesus is coming. She knows I, I need to get to him. I, I, I've sent for him. Now that he's, he's on the way, man, I've got to get to Jesus Christ. I must go here. And how does she know, right? Probably the messenger, let's get practical here, probably the messenger that she sent to Jesus has probably come back before and probably went ahead of him and his disciples and probably said, he's left, he's on the way. 
So when she hears this, she goes. Friends, this begs a quick question for us. Where do you turn in times of trouble? Where do you turn in times of need, in times of hardship? Who or what do you run to? Do you numb the pain with substances or sin? Do you quickly run to the the thing that will just occupy your mind and, and distract you for a moment? Do you ignore the pain with activity or maybe work? Let me clarify. Activity and work can be helpful in times of need. Sometimes we need to just get out. We need to take a walk. We need to get out of our our self-pity. We need to make movement. We need to to do things. We need to work hard, right? I mean, even in times of need, there's work to be done, and and we we must work. We must be active. We need community. But these things are not meant to be substitutes for our running to Christ. They are meant to be supplements to our running to Christ. They're not meant to substitute what we should find in Christ and Christ alone. They are for our benefit, good gifts. We must run to Christ. Look at what Martha says here. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, let's look at the words of Martha here. These words are full of grief and faith. I mean, this is a grieving woman here. Like, Lord, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. Lord, if you would have just done what I asked everything would have worked out the way that I wanted. If you would have just came when I said to come, we wouldn't be in this situation. I mean, does this not sound like us? Oftentimes we question God, don't we? God, if you would have just done this the way that I asked you to do it, like, you know, we wouldn't be in this mess. Like, come on, what are you thinking, God? She also shows some confidence in Christ here. So while it is, she's grieving and she's, she's thinking and she's questioning, like, why, why does, is this happening? Why am I going through this? If you were here, you would have done something. She also demonstrates some faith, doesn't she? She says, but even now. Even though you didn't do what I asked you to do and you didn't come exactly when we thought you should come, like even now I know that whatever you ask from God, it can happen. Now, we don't know exactly what Martha is thinking here, and I'm not going to read into the text. We don't know exactly what she means when it says whatever you ask from God, God will give you. But what we do know is that she understands there is a unique relationship between Jesus Christ, God the Son, and God the Father. She knows there is something unique here, that that whatever Jesus asks, probably from her experiences, her time with Jesus, that God will 
do. And these results are unfamiliar to the natural man. So she says, I know I need you. I know you could have done something, and you are still powerful, even though you may not have answered how I wanted. The point, what I want us to see is that we have a real woman with real grief, and she's grieving over something that is grievable, death. And here we see that she runs to Jesus for help. So what does Jesus say? Look at verse 23. Your brother will rise again. So here Jesus presents a statement with a bit of ambiguity here. And we know this by Martha's response. Martha said to him, Well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day in verse 24. Now, the majority of the first century Jews, minus the Sadducees, believed in a resurrection after death. I mean, this was was common thought. Um, In Acts 23, 8, uh, we read, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. So even the Pharisees acknowledged that there was some sort of resurrection after death. We also know that Jesus has taught that there will be a resurrection, John chapter 5 and 6. But since Jesus doesn't mention that Lazarus' resurrection is like literally about to happen, Okay, so although we're taking this last week, we did the introduction, we're we've looking now at this, the middle part of this story next week, Pastor Brandon will will finish up like this didn't happen in three different weeks. Okay, this here is now the next scene and now he's about to then perform this miracle, this sign. But he doesn't speak clearly about it here. But then he does, after she misses the point, he he clears up the ambiguity, removes any abstract thought here by clearly declaring his power over death as he makes a dramatic claim. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Notice the resurrection and life is not something that Jesus simply does. It is something that he is. Uh, Just like uh, he doesn't just say, I give you bread. He says, I I am the bread. He he doesn't just give us new life. It is only found in him. It is in him alone. Now, this is the fifth I am statement in John, something that we should definitely take uh, a clear notice of, that he is proclaiming his deity here. To these first century Jews, I mean, he would be basically saying, I am God. He's using now the Old Testament's uh, form of Yahweh and saying, I am. We've talked about that before, but it's important even here to point that out again. 
And here, Jesus is declaring that it is only through a relationship with him by faith that one will have eternal life and never die. Listen, look at the exclusivity of Jesus here. Look at what he is saying here. It is those that believe in him alone that will have eternal life. So listen, friends. If you walked in this gathering this morning thinking there is any other way to eternal life, there is any other way to uh, reconcile you to your creator, any other way to escape the judgment that all man is due because of their sin apart from Christ, let me just tell you, this text clearly says that there is no one apart from Christ that can reconcile us to our creator. It is only through him. It is not through worldly philosophies. It is not through good works. It is not through anything else. It's not through unity. It is not through anything beside Christ and Christ alone. He alone took on our sin. He alone lived the perfect life that we could not do and live and then died the death that we deserve, bearing our sin on the cross, but then rising again to new life, declaring victory over death. He is now ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, mediating, advocating for his people. It is only him. And Jesus says it is only those that believe have faith in me that have eternal life. Remember what he says in John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Everyone will be judged. Everyone will be raised again, some to the resurrection of destruction, some to the resurrection of life. And it's only those who are in Christ that will be raised to eternal life. There is no other way. Paul reminds young Timothy of this great truth in 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13. And he writes, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, I've heard that passage misquoted many times. Many people have said, well, that teaches that when we're faithless, that he just hits, it's, it's his faith that's going to do these things for us. And that's not what this is saying. It's saying 
that those who are faithless, that those that do not have faith in Christ and Christ alone will not be raised to new life because God will not deny himself. And he has made the declaration of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. I am the resurrection and the life. If you're in here today, turn to him. Run to Christ. Question we must all answer is next. Do you believe this? This is what he says in verse 27. John writes, she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So Martha here essentially makes a a profession of faith. Now, she doesn't know exactly what she is saying, but she's showing personal confidence that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is and can do what he says he will do. So upon her Profession, she then runs and gets her sister Mary. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. So we read that she quietly talks to her sister Uh, She doesn't come in and make a stir. She doesn't say, hey, the teacher's here. The text tells us she privately went to her sister here. And then we read on where Jesus is, and it says that he's not yet come into the village. So, So Jesus is still where Martha has met him. He hasn't made his way into the village. He hasn't made his uh, a gr- uh, great uh, debut here. He, he's just still on the, the outskirts. We don't know exactly why, but this is just where he is. But when the Jews, look at verse 31. So what happens now when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, what'd they do? They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. I mean, if you, if you put this on like a plot graph, I mean, here you see this rising action, right? I mean, you see this crowd gathering and, and God orchestrating this, this opportunity to demonstrate his power to these people. I mean, th- this story is just, I mean, it's magnificent. Here we see the reason. And God is calling this group. He knows what is about to happen. He's, he's a clarion call here for, for Christ even. Like, you're going to the cross. You're going to the cross. I mean, it was custom for those mourning to follow the person they were consoling to the tomb. Uh, they even hired professional uh, mourners there. Uh, so that way, if the, the morning got low, uh, this person would start to wail and then kind of get everyone back amped up. 
I mean, mourning was a big thing. They, they even had musicians that would come along and would kind of tap into the emotions. Uh, happens a lot in churches today as well, but that's another point. Uh, but this is what would happen then. They would tap into the emotions and kind of stir them up, and, and then you're going to cry again. This was what was happening. So they would, they would go. They would follow. They assumed she's going to the tomb. We got to go. We got to help her. We got to console her here. But God is at work. It is all God's plan here. So then we see that Mary then seeks consolation from Jesus. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, so she goes, she sees him, she falls at his feet. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, this is a similar response as Martha, right? They knew what Jesus was capable of. I mean, she believed based on her experiences with Jesus that he could have healed him, could have removed her pain. I mean, once again, we see this is grief. There is pain here. I mean, this isn't some fairy tale scene going on. This isn't lighthearted. This is intense grief. So how does Jesus respond to this? How does our Lord, the King of kings, the God-man, Lord of lords, the sovereign, the eternal one, how does he respond to the grief of humanity? Let's look. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now stop right there. Deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled doesn't really cut it. Okay, the the English translation of the original word here actually doesn't do it justice. The original word here and what's really being communicated that would be better read is to say that Jesus is outraged. He's actually angered at what he is seeing. And what is he angered at? He's angered at sin. He's angered at the effects of sin on humanity. D.A. Carson, uh, which his commentary on John is very helpful here. And he says, I quote, It is lexically inexcusable to reduce this emotional upset to the effects of empathy, grief, pain, or the like. End quote. So he says, like, the interpretation here that it's just some, like, grief, if we're to take it like, oh, he's just, uh, just has empathy here, that's wrong. What we should see is that Jesus is actually angered at this situation. He is outraged. And here Jesus demonstrates great compassion for humanity. He's angered at the cause of their grief. He's angered at death. He's angered at these things. I mean, friends, do, do you understand that Jesus righteously, without sinning, hates your pain? 
He, he hates your pain, and, and although he uses it, which is another manifestation of his hatred towards it, because our pain is not in vain, is it? He uses it for our good and his glory. And he hates it, though. Jesus continues in verse 34. So then he responds in, in anger, and he's upset. So he says, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then we get verse 35. Jesus wept. Now, Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the Bible. But there's a reason why it gets its own marker here. I mean, it shows Christ's humanity as our Savior. It shows that he indeed was fully God, fully man. It shows us that while he was a man, he had every emotion as we do, but he did not sin. Jesus laughed. Jesus cried. I mean, this is the friend we have in Christ. If we call him Lord, this is the one who is our king. J.C. Ryle is helpful here. I quote, One thing at any rate is abundantly clear from this passage. There's nothing wrong or wicked in being greatly moved by the sight of sorrow, so long as we keep our feelings under control. See, friends, we have feelings, we have emotions for a reason. We've been given emotions, right? I mean, God didn't create robots. He's given us emotions. I mean, read the Psalms, it's highs and lows, ups and downs. I'm angry, I'm upset when I'm feeling anxious, when I'm feeling. So we have emotions for a reason. And if we aim to be Christ-like, we will use our emotions for good. This is what we see our Savior doing. See, we're not to be controlled by our emotions. They do not control us. They should not uh, wear the, the hat of authority in our lives, should they? No. They, they should push us, prompt us, compel us, be a, be a springboard to run to the Word of God to see what God's Word has to say about our situations. We're called to express our emotions in healthy ways. And the crowd responds to this. So they've seen Jesus now angered. They've seen Jesus now weep. So what does this crowd that God has drawn there do? How do they respond? Look at verse 36 and 37. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So this crowd that has followed Mary is watching. They, they, they see here. They see his emotions. And it, it causes them to, to kind of investigate this Jesus. They're, they're, they're thinking back to what they've seen. They, they've known the miracles of Jesus. They've, some of them may have just heard the miracles of Jesus. They're like, well, uh, he, he loves these people. He, 
He really does. And then others say, well, could he not have maybe saved this man, prevented all of this? Now, there's no reason to suggest here that uh, they are uh, skeptical or they're even being cynical here about Jesus. That would also be reading in. We don't, we don't see that anywhere in the text. But the point that we see is that they don't understand. They don't understand what's going on here. Brothers and sisters, that is the same for people in our day, isn't it? See, many don't understand. Many will say, well, if God is so good, why do bad things happen? If God is so good, then why is there evil in the world? If your God is so good, then why do you deal with fill in the blank? Let's see. Based on this text, we can say we don't know exactly why this happened to me, but God doesn't enjoy our sorrows, and God uses our sorrows. See, there's one commonality in all of humanity. Every one of us in here have a common thread, whether you're a Christian or not, We are all going to go through hardships. Kids, you will face hardships. But let me remind you, the only one that can sustain you through them is God himself. And without God, what are hardships for? Without God using the things that we go through for our good, for his glory, I don't understand how people go through life. I spent many years just chasing the world and trying to find something that would fulfill me in this life as I dealt with my own past and insecurities and different things that that just normal humanity goes through. And while I groped for these things of the world, guess what? Each and every one of them left me empty. Because guess what? They're not meant to sustain. The only thing that can get us through is resting in God, resting in a Savior who loves us, who knows us. And as the writer of Hebrews says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, meaning our our profession of faith, our confession that he is Lord. We are his. Then it goes on, for we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus Christ here, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. So I close with this. Where are you running in your time of need? Are you running to the great high priest, Jesus Christ, the one that is powerful and compassionate for your situation? Are you running to the things of the world? 